Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. And of course here on RTE Radio 1 on Sunday nights. Tonight, islands. We journey across an atlas of remote islands in the company of world-renowned sound recordist Chris Watson, writer-presenter Luke Clancy, composer Irene Buckley and actor Cathy Rose O'Brien. Islands fuses documentary and drama and even a bit of pretending to make the journey from Ross Island in the Antarctic to Galapagos, Svalbard and the possibly mythical Irish Isle of High Brazil. The programme won gold for Best Sound at the 2021 New York Festival's Radio Awards. about minus 20 but at least I'm not all on my own I'm about 78 degrees south on this deep black tongue of lava and pumice surrounded by ice and snow. This is Cape Evans on Ross Island in the Antarctic. McMurdo Sound, a sea of ice I'm looking out in front of now. And this completely pollution-free, crystal clear air. The immense mountain range of the trans-Antarctic mountains of continental Antarctica. And then the quietness. There's some Antarctic skewers on a small freshwater pool of of melted snow down the slope, which I occasionally hear. But up here, there is nothing else. Maybe a two or three kilometre breeze just carrying over this slope. But apart from that, this is probably as quiet as it gets on this planet. Hey Chris, do you mind if I join you? Yeah, Luke, come over here. It's just a few steps, but be careful. Whoa. Yeah, it's really sharp. It's a bit like walking on glass. Just hang on and make sure you keep your balance. Trippy. 
Why is it so quiet? I think it's the quietest place we've ever been. Um, there's a few Antarctic skewers up the slope, but apart from that, there is nothing. There's no wind, there's no breeze at all. And the other thing I've noticed is there's no insects. There's no buzz and hum of wings in the air. This really is a frozen desert. Ross Island, 78 degrees south. It's so quiet. Feels like your man can hear me thinking. And my pencil moving across the paper, the bit soggy paper. Does sogginess go with silence? We're both trying to find out what's still beautiful in our world, listening for things that bring us an old feeling like amazement or joy, or just being outside. Chris has the good mics. I have the soggy notebook. He's outside recording the missing sound. I'm in here collecting moisture in my notebook and other things. Twas ever thus, the start of another journey, very consistently mapped and planned, navigating 90 degrees south to 90 degrees north, skimming across a necklace of remote islands, and all the same, like the best traveling, kind of fictional. Notice, but you know that expensive um, gear of yours has kind of fallen into the water there. Those wires going down into the into the ice. Yeah, it's supposed to do that. It's designed to do that. Look, they're hydrophones, which are underwater microphones. And what I'm hoping to record are the pressure ridges where these great lumps of freshwater ice break off the Bond Glacier and fall down onto the surface of the Ross Sea, which itself is still frozen. And then these huge lumps of ice rub and grind together and produce some remarkable sounds which I can record from under the surface. Can I have a go of your headphones? Yeah, yeah, take these. It's a kind of like a sort of a retro synth sound. It's 
funny. All anybody ever remembers about the McMurdo base in the Antarctic is the ice cream. Oh, I get it. It's free. It's endless. It's soft serve. It's still kind of a weird thing when it's minus six in the summer. I suppose it's the fact that it is summer. That's why people want ice cream. But seriously, ice cream is not the story of Antarctica. Ice cream is not even the story of McMurdo. Standby, please. Sound. Quiet, please. Turn over, please. Camera speed. Cue David. Actually, I was here about 10 years ago. I worked on a BBC television series called Frozen Planet, and I was here with David Attenborough, and we stayed at the American science base McMurdo, which is on Ross Island. We've already seen that the animals are adapting to these changes. But can we respond to what is happening now? <laughs> the strange thing was, traveling around there, there are no roads, there's really no wheeled vehicles out on the ice, so we either took skidoos to travel across the surface of the frozen sea, the Ross Sea, or we would just go and book a helicopter like you would book a taxi. And quite often we would travel in a helicopter half an hour or so down the coast to this place, Cape Evans. And that's particularly special because on Cape Evans is Terra Nova. It was the hut that Captain Scott and his party used to make a base. And it's the place where he walked out from in October 1911 with his crew and set off down the beach across the surface of the frozen Ross Sea to the continent of Antarctica and then walked a thousand miles to the South Pole. And I remember standing by that door on several occasions, looking at the wooden door frame and imagining Scott and his party leaving that hut, going out from that door over a hundred years ago. And of course, they never came back. as it shifted fractionally towards the edge of the Ross Sea. One of the ideas I had was to follow the journey of the Barn Glacier from freshwater ice to seawater. The first part of that journey is when the glacier carves, so giant house-sized, car-sized blocks of fresh water break off the edge of the glacier and land on the surface of the still-frozen Ross Sea. And these great lumps of ice mix and merge, the sea ice and the freshwater ice mix and merge into what's called pressure ridges and they rub up against each other and produce these astonishing tones, these squeaks and grinds as they're rolling about. 
Gradually, as the austral summer develops, the sea ice starts to melt and is pushed by the currents from the great southern ocean. And it's like a great giant slush puppy. And these granules of sea ice are pushed up against the lava beach of Ross Island. It really exudes this remarkable sense of sheer, unstoppable power. really is a beautiful sound from the humpback whales. I think that's one of my favourite flotillas. 
Yeah, me too. And I think we should follow them because they're on their northerly migration and they're going to go up through the Pacific right up to the equator and then around the Galapagos Islands. So I think we should go up there and hang out with them and just have a break taking the sights there. And then we should follow their wake north somewhere into the Northern Hemisphere because they're looking for a place where I've always wanted to go and I'm convinced it's out there somewhere and the humpback whales can find it because I think they're going to high Brazil. It's funny, when you started talking about high Brazil, I thought, what a load of nonsense. But you know, the other day I was looking on Google Earth and it's there, like there's a photograph of high Brazil. Wow, uh, anything from TripAdvisor? No stars at all. And I mean, you don't seem to be able to get there either. There's no ferries, no connections of any sort. Just this little island coming out of the sea. Yeah, I think you'd have a long wait. You know it only comes out of the fog banks for one day every seven years. But I'm sure the whales know it's the right time, so I think we should follow them up there and see if it appears out of the mist. Galapagos, archipelago of islands around the equator. Travelling is quite difficult, I find. All that being concentrated and remembering other people and tents and tiny rooms without tiny rooms of their own. All that difficult. And the way you could miss all the signs and not even notice there's a crunch coming. Not that Chris and I are like that. Not that we'd even argue. Or actually share a tent even. But the principle is there. And so he's taking a little walk by himself today, which is fine. Of course, it's easier to let nature unfold around you if you're not making small talk or any size talk. That's all fine. The Galapagos Islands really are a reminder of how transient landscapes are because the islands themselves were formed by huge volcanic eruptions on the bed of the Pacific Ocean and appeared as huge monumental blocks of solidified lava on the surface. 
lava which was slowly colonized over millennia, first of all by small particles of dust and soil, and then birds would land and bring with them seeds, and then insects arrive, and slowly the process of colonization occurs with plants and then birds and other animals. And then, after the islands are established with fauna and flora and woodland and forest and meadows, the action of the weather on the surface and the action of the Humboldt current around the islands slowly erode. So islands that appeared and flourished over millennia slowly disappear back into the depths of the Pacific Ocean. This simple song is sung by one of Darwin's finches, that famous group of birds that helped inspire his theory of evolution. Because Darwin recognized that finches on different islands and different habitats within the Galapagos Islands had evolved slightly differently with different beaks to feed on whatever was available in their particular habitat or island. So some of Darwin's finches eat seeds and berries. And at the other end of the scale, there's a vampire finch, which has evolved to feed on the blood of other birds. And because of the isolation of the Galapagos Islands, this finch that's singing now has a direct genetic connection to the finches that Darwin heard singing when he was here on the Galapagos Islands in the 1830s. into the crater, the caldera of the Alcido volcano on Isabella. It really is like being dropped into a lost world because almost everything up here is unique. The birds and the insects and some of the plants because they've been trapped up here for tens, hundreds of thousands of years and so they've each evolved in their own special way. One of the most remarkable things for me at sunset was the insect chorus, insects that I'd never heard before. Sorry to interrupt you, but what is that smell? Yeah, no, I, I think that's mostly hydrogen sulphide, and it's coming out of the ground in those bursts of white steam and gases that we can see in the distance. They're fumaroles, 
and you see these gases emerge and then you hear this distant rumble and then the smell hits you. <coughs> that, that is a really good recording because you really can smell them. Luke, Luke. Yeah? Just come over here a moment. These are the famous giant Galapagos tortoises, and this pair are really special because they're part of the population that have evolved up here in the Alcedo crater. They've been up here for thousands of years, and they can't leave the caldera because of the steep sides. So they have to do lots of exercise in there. I mean, they seem to be doing gymnastics there at the moment. <laughs> you know very well what they're doing, Luke. They're doing what Alcedo tortoises have to do periodically to reproduce. Do you think they're OK? Yeah, I think they're doing absolutely fine. I mean, just listen. the way that they're being cheered on by one of Darwin's finches. Yeah, how about that? Two very different paths of evolution. Two unique species together in this crater. They're really concentrating on that. <laughs> yeah, but come on, I think we should, um, we should avert our gaze and just leave them to it. Let's move on and give them some space. There's nowhere to land on any of the Galapagos Islands, at least not if you arrive by laptop. No blue roads on Google Maps, just some tinted patches marking where users have uploaded their own photos. I drop down off Genovesa Island to a sparkling morning at the foot of some cliffs inside a boat with a party of tourists, their cameras trained towards the ship-dappled rock. A tour boat here, like Darwin's beagle before it, to see what makes these islands exemplary. In fact, two scientists came to the Galapagos many years apart. Darwin is the better known, but the later arrival of an American polymath called Robert Stuart McKay is the one most likely to shape your future. What Darwin first saw on Galapagos was deep time, massively slow processes that no creature had ever lived to see. Today we call it evolution. In 1964, McKay used radio sensors he'd invented for embedding in animals to track and eventually to control their moods, behaviors, lives. Back then, McKay called his field biomedical telemetry. Today we call it surveillance. These tiny devices helped McKay gather massive amounts of data on the daily lives of his unknowing suspects. In a way, we are all only getting to experience now. I drop my yellow self onto the main island and write into a pen at the Centro de Crianza Tortugas Gigantes. The walls are low at this complex for giant tortoises and people walk about the animal spaces because tortoises are slow and vegetarian and gullible. 
McKay found the best way to implant an animal with one of his tracking devices was to turn it on its back and tickle its feet. When the giant tortoise giggled in its hissy giant tortoise fashion, he dropped the tracking device into its mouth and the turtle would swallow. What a foolish turtle, I scoff as I reach to check my phone. And so we're off again, navigating not with the global positioning system, not that one anyway, and not the stars either, or even the pricking in our thumbs. Our markers are white plumes and spouts, occasional breaches even, where the whales leap up to check that we're still following as they lead us to a land that regularly isn't there. I was a bit sceptical about this this journey of yours. You know, where exactly we were going, but here we aren't. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased I could actually bring you here, Luke. It's something, and <laughs> we've had these conversations from afar, but now to actually stand on the shore with our feet in the sand and just look up to this place, this island, and that towering mountain ahead of us, it's... It is real because we're standing on it. Yes, and, and at the same time, it doesn't exist. That's kind of quite weird. Well, I, I, was, I was always fairly confident it did. I know we sort of differed on that, but I remember, I mean, the map that I, I brought with me and sadly got, got waterlogged and lost in the waves, but I remember, I don't even know where it came from, but it almost appeared in my studio by 
someone called Sebastian Munster, and it's mid 17th century, so it's perhaps made in the 1650s. Uh, and it, it was actually what struck me, it was remarkably accurate in terms of the outline of Britain and Ireland. And there were other islands. Uh, High Brazil appears somewhere out to the west from either Kerry or Cork, I'm not quite sure. But there's islands like Herta, which is part of the St Kilda archipelago, which is on that map and another island that I've been to. And so it, it gave me confidence that, um, that if we came on the right day and the right part of that seven-year cycle, then we'd get here and, and find ourselves ashore. It was lucky we followed the, the 17th century map because I, I, I normally I'd use Google Earth and, uh, you know, it puts High Brazil somewhere completely different. Up, up, up near Donegal, off that coast. Yeah, I think their satellites are sometimes a bit dodgy. I mean, I, I put my faith in the humpbacks to get us here. And then as soon as I heard those echolocation clicks of the orca, which were surrounding the island and which we manoeuvred through, then I knew we were in the right place. Because the animals over there, that strange wailing siren song, They're grey seals, and the pups of grey seals are one of the favourite snacks of the orca that are circling the island. But that sound, that's the sound I'm convinced those siren voices that lured those Portuguese and Spanish sailors onto the rocks of these islands centuries ago, and it's probably how it was discovered. It didn't take us that long to get here, but I got a funny kind of, like a jet lag, or. Maybe it's a high Brazil lag. I just feel a bit off. Yeah, I know what you mean, because I don't really know what, what longitude we are out here. But look, we're here. Our feet are on the ground. <laughs> we're absolutely on high Brazil, Luke. On, on imaginary ground, though. Well, listen. You can hear the sand at my feet. thing I love about that sound is that horn, it really is the sound of quite a, you know, we're in a very strange place and that is a very strange, haunting, quite discomforting song. And you can imagine hearing that coming out of the fog and then seeing those large grey shapes, mermaid style shapes, lolling around on the rocks. You would, if you'd been at sea for some time, it was a place you'd think about investigating. But as soon as you got close to those rocks in a wooden ship, you would find yourself uh, wrecked. And those that survived would be standing on the shore, much, much as we are now.
nothing but weird animals and birds around here. They're frigate birds, great frigate birds. So like the Galapagos, like Skellig Michael, all sorts of interesting things get washed up here, like us. But over the centuries, there's lots of fauna and flora arrive here from all parts, from the tropics to more northern latitudes, which then creates this remarkable multinational soundscape. from the forest. Yeah, it seemed to be. Yeah, that sort of howling, roaring sound. They're howler monkeys. They're black howler monkeys. That's really interesting, because one of the accounts from one of the early Portuguese sailors that came here um, in the maybe the 15th or 16th century accounted for finding monkeys on the island. So black howler monkeys have obviously drifted up here from South America. And they have this, the males call to each other across the tree canopy. They like lots of things in rainforest. And that to me looks like, like decent rainforest. And lots of things in rainforest, you see very little, but you hear everything. and they're calling to each other, roaring, howling across the canopy. That sound can travel for miles, so different family groups can keep in touch and tell each other where the best fig trees are. And I guess that's where they're headed for the breakfast. It's just as well they, they do howl so much because it's kind of getting a bit dark already. It was just dawn a minute ago. <laughs> This bizarre cycle, it's a bit like Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> well, that, I remember some of the places there in a film there, it cycles through day and night about uh, every 45 minutes to give you the experience. But if we make our way through the forest and up past the tree line, we'll see the sunset and maybe look out for some other things up there. Luke, are you okay? Yeah, I, I think so. Something kind of big and feathery just hit me in the face. Oh, wow, listen. Actually, you're really lucky, because what we're hearing and what just hit you was a Manx shearwater. I was wondering if these birds were here. These, again, a bit like the howler monkeys, these birds have migrated here from South America. They're really far-travelling birds. I think they're members of the albatross family, and they nest in burrows in, in high Brazil. So they nest underground. So during the day, you never see them, you never hear them, even though they might be the most populous bird on the island. You don't see them during the day because the partner... One of the birds is underground looking after its egg or chick, and the other bird is out somewhere, maybe as far south as the Bay of Biscay, catching food, catching fish, and they bring them back in the evenings. But they have to run the gauntlet of the frigate birds, and then there's some of the larger gulls which circle the island waiting for the opportunity to steal fish 
from other birds. So they tend to come in under cover of darkness. So they choose, just like now, dark, moonless, cloudy nights where there's very little light to see anything. They have very large eyes. They can see well in the dark. And they fly around the island, circle the island, calling to their mate. And that's what that incredible cackling, screaming, banshee-like sound is. And then eventually they have to target themselves to their nest burrow, rather like a, a dart, because they don't have legs, their feet are attached straight to the body. So one of them was headed straight down that burrow there, but we walked in front of it and you caught the full force of that look. Yeah, I certainly did. I can, I can just imagine, or if we put ourselves back in centuries, imagine if we were monks or people very little knowledge of natural history. A bit like the monks say on, on Skelly, and on dark, cloudy nights when you're in your beehive cell and you're expecting these unknown terrors to come out of the West. And in fact, that's one reason you were there, to build up this battery of prayer power to defend everybody from any evil that would come out of the West. And in fact, what would come out of the West would be Manx Shearwaters in the spring and summer. And you wouldn't see these birds, but you would hear these banshee screams and howls circling the summit of the island, just as we can now. And it would seem to those people, maybe, that the air was just full of demons. Feels that way now.
leaving High Brazil. call it Bergman Island now. Fere was its holy name. It takes two ferry journeys from Stockholm, away past all the pleasant islands and their weekend cabins where the glowing Swedes can live the island life and sail to work on Monday morning through the flickering sunlight. Ingmar Bergman, further out there into the North Sea, was even less wasteful of his time, more beholding to his island hunger. He moved there permanently and insisted his film production followed him. I don't think I can do that, said Liv Ullman when the director invited the star of his film, Persona, to move with him to the island. I don't think I can do that, she said, having already learned to fear the island while making that film. A story of two women whose mental health is mirrored and perhaps destroyed by the island landscape of rock and sand and the distance from help. Me, I'd have been more worried about being pregnant by a man who called the Nazis fun and youthful. But islands can do that, make it all about them. I clicked on the little yellow figure and dropped him on the island. I landed outside the Crepery Tatty, a pleasant scrapyard come eating house, with photos that let me see inside, where all the families with their smudged out faces were sitting, waiting for me. Islands, 68 degrees north. Andy Sombi, who is a Sami performing a yoik on the island of Kvalnes and more or less halfway up this very steep sided mountain. Sami believe that their ancestors reside within the landscape. So you become part of the landscape when you pass on. And one way of communicating with your ancestors is to perform these wordless vocalizations in the landscape. And these are called yoiks. Degrees north. 
cold. Well, Luke, 80 degrees north Svalbard. This is the extent of our journey. 80 degrees, That's that's got to be Norway then. Well, I think they like to think it's Norway, but and they lay some sort of claim to it, but it really is a sort of no man's land or no person's land. There's lots of people been here. You don't need a passport when you land here. You don't need a driving license. Um, and in fact, the Russians built a town here some years ago, Barentsburg, for, to start a big coal mine. So lots of people laid claim to it. That explains all those statues of Lenin all around the place. Comrade Lenin. Yeah, I wonder if he ever came. There's one thing I really want to listen to here because because of our latitude, 80 degrees north, we're in that perfect position because the sea freezes solid here in winter. We're just at that time of year, just as the weather, as the season's turning. And this, just down here, down by the harbour, you can see this very slow movement on the surface of the water. And then it starts to change colour. The surface of the sea goes milky and these strange geometric shapes appear. It's called pancake ice. And then at that point, the surface of the sea stops moving because it's freezing. It's the point where the sea water's at minus two degrees centigrade. And it's that point where liquid seawater becomes sea ice from underneath. I've got some hydrophones in there. So put these other headphones on, have a listen. Thanks. those occasionally it's actually coming closer those long descending tones yeah they're very distinct from the ice sound it's like they're much more like a melody yeah they're bearded seals so the way sound travels underwater and the fact that sound travels almost five times faster means that some of these animals we're starting to hear now might be 15, 20 kilometers away from these hydrophones, way out in the Arctic Ocean, in the depths. And those male bearded seals are 
hanging vertically in the water with their heads down, singing in the darkness below the sea ice to retain their harem of females. That's a strange image, all right. They call the group of seals a colony, don't they? And, and that's what they sounded like when we heard the grey seals. But these bearded seals, they sound more like a choir. You've been listening to Drama on One's production of Islands. Islands was written and presented by Luke Clancy. Sound recording and sound design were by Chris Watson. Luke and Chris narrated the journey while actor Cathy Rose O'Brien was the navigator. The score was composed by Irene Buckley. Sound supervision was by Ruth Kennington. Islands was produced by Kevin Brew. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. To listen back to the programme, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Islands was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Next week's Drama on One is Deep by Raymond Scannell, directed by Tom Creed. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.